The uh, title has changed slightly, although the content has not. The title changed because the regent said I should be old enough to know I shouldn't use the word brothels in a religious <laughs> institution. No, that's not true. But he did get a number of calls from the local brothel holders who were uh, incensed about being compared with banks. <laughs> Are there any Australians? No Australians. Well, I can speak. Let me introduce you to an Australian you'll like, Will Dyson, who in 1933 wrote a lovely book called An Artist Among the Bankers, in which he says, by the way, Will Dyson was not only a writer, he was a cartoonist of the first rate, so I highly recommend it. Finance, he said, is inhibiting all other freedoms. The method of getting things done known as finance denies us two essential freedoms, freedom from unnecessary work and freedom from unnecessary want. We accept with a minimum of purposelessness, with a minimum, we accept and with a minimum of purposelessness, protest the right of finance to operate against the interests of mankind and, if you will have it, the will of God. Some of you at least might agree with that. Angela, you might. That was, that was from a non-economist, intelligent human being in 1933. At the same time, almost the same, well, in, during the same month, John Maynard Keynes said, gave his professional economic view on the same thing. He said, madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are, are distilling their frenzy with some academic scribbler from some few years back. And that also is true. And probably truer today than it was then. My theme really takes on these two individuals, Dyson and Keynes. In fact, finance, specifically corporate finance, dominates our lives today in a way that neither Dyson or Keynes would have, would have recognized, with even more intense madness than Keynes was referring to. In the 1930s, uh, corporate finance was a specialized practice of a relatively few captains of industry, let's call them, by which they exerted personal power and accumulated, by today's standards, reasonably modest fortunes. But it was a practice that had neither uh, widespread social approval, as Dyson suggests, nor any real theoretical justification. Dyson and Keynes' attitudes were typical of the chattering classes of the time. And these attitudes are what enabled uh, political and legal constraints to be implemented in, in most industrialized countries in the 30s, things like the Glass-Steagall Act in the US and a number of other um, investment legislation in, in mo almost every country in the world. Now, corporate finance, therefore, was a questionable practice in the 1930s, likely to, and because everyone recognized it, was likely to lead to innumerable abuses, which it had. Therefore, it had to be controlled. Times have changed. Today, corporate finance is not only a specialized uh, activity engaged in by a coterie of uh, wheelers and dealers, Somebody mentioned Jamie Dimon before uh, we started, and indeed he is one of these wheeler and dealers. But it is that too still. Uh, it is also a central component uh, of our modern global culture in a way that uh, it simply is, uh, would be unrecognizable to, to Dyson and Keynes, for example. It has spread its influence not just through business, but throughout academia and government as well, to such an extent that it has become 
the social air we breathe. And uh, that air, we, we've come to recognize, is in fact toxic. Corporate finance in its current form is a diagnosis, really, rather than a description of a di discipline. It's a diagnosis of our society in many ways, and I hope to show you why. In doing so, uh, I face an obvious problem. The first is that corporate finance is a tedious abstraction, except to those who are seduced by its charm. So I intend to do, what I intend to do is introduce you to the subject through some people that have played an, an important role in my life, in one way or another. Th this is a sort of a rogues gallery, which I hope will make the subject somewhat more intelligible, as, a bit more, as well as a bit more human, and perhaps humane. And also to, to provide data which you don't get in uh, sort of the statistical economic uh, uh, digests and so forth. Now, the, the first of these uh, folk is a man that you may have heard of, but I doubt it, unless you're in the finance business. Michael Milken. Now, he was a classmate of mine at uh, the, Wharton, <coughs> the Wharton Graduate School. In fact, we were part of the same study group. My wife used to ask me, are, are you sure that you took all the same courses that Michael did? <laughs> uh, Michael Milton is actually a legend in the, in the world of finance. In the 1970s, he overturned the conventional structure of the industry. Pre-Milken, the only companies which, which could access uh, financial access financial markets were the big established so-called blue chip companies like IBM, Westinghouse, people like that. Um, these big <coughs> companies issued stock through the traditional investment in merchant banks of the day. It was a, a typically very cozy and refined business, but not very welcoming to innovative uh, smaller companies. Michael was a man with passion, and he still is a man with passion, and, and patently a social mission to free the capital markets from the oligarchic control of the big investment in merchant banks and to open up the spigot of financial capital, if you will, to everybody. Michael fixed that by single-handedly creating the so-called junk bond market out of his office in Notabene, Los Angeles, not New York City. In doing so, he became tremendously wealthy, but he also did some rather naughty things that resulted in a, in a prison sentence of two years and an incredible fine of over a billion dollars. Now, that's 1976 or 1979 dollars, so that's a lot of bucks. Personally, for conspiring with uh, people such as, you may remember, even Ivan Bosky, the arbitrageurs, to rig markets. Now, it should be noted that since his release, Michael has been a major benefactor to a range of, of medical research charities, particularly those who are involved with prostate cancer from which he suffers. Um, estimates vary, but it's clear that Michael had donated, has donated to date at least 500 million, perhaps a billion, to these charities. A good, a good man, in other words. In, in Yiddish, he's a mensch. Clearly, he and I took different classes at Wharton, despite my wife. The, the second character in this sort of rogues gallery is uh, perhaps more known to some of you. He's the former CEO of Enron, uh, Mr. Jeff Skilling. Now, Jeff and I intersect in McKinsey and Company. 
uh, the worldwide management consultants, where he and I were members of the firm's uh, financial services practice. Uh, his advancements in McKinsey was far greater, faster than mine, and, and so were his ideas. Uh, Jeff led McKinsey's relationship with the Enron Corporation in many assignments over several years. Eventually, his uh, genuine genius in finance was recognized by uh, uh, Ken Lay, who was the chairman of Enron, who hired him. And it was through Jeff's efforts that Enron not only grew spectacularly, but became recognized as the most respected company in America, according to the Fortune survey, six years in a row. The company was not only the darling of Wall Street, it also became a McKinsey and a Harvard Business School case study on what modern business was all about. Until, of course, something happened. As you all know, Enron went down even more spectacularly than it had gone up, bringing down not only its senior executives, but also the largest accounting firm in the world, Arthur Anderson. Jeff was originally sentenced to 22 years in the pokey, but the sentence was reduced on appeal to a mere 14. For a and this was for a variety of securities frauds, which are largely very technical, we don't need to get into. And, and, but he, yet still today, maintains the in innocence of these, these charges of fraud. And I believe that he believes that claim. After, after all, anyone who, who knows him knows that he is intellectually highly astute and precise. And you, if you do know him, you have to ask the question, how could anyone so smart be such a crook? <laughs> now the saying goes actually in spades for the third of my pals, Bernie Madoff, most of you will know. He was the, the, the creator of what has been now called the biggest uh, Ponzi scheme ever to have uh, been perpetrated. The accounting is still a bit fuzzy because of the way uh, things took place, but Bernie probably lost the investors in his fund the, in the neighborhood of, of $20 billion. And for his misdeeds, he's been sentenced to 150 years in federal prison which actually is probably the safest place in the world he can be, given the death wishes sent his way by a fairly substantial portion of the population of New York City and its suburbs. <laughs> but Bernie's criminal notoriety may obscure what are absolutely spectacular prior achievements. When I was managing director of the American Stock Exchange in the 1980s, Bernie was uh, my primary competitor for the listing of, of new companies on NASDAQ. He was chairman of NASDAQ at the time. And I have to say that I was no match at all for this charming, intelligent, forceful, personable, and, and supremely competent individual. Now, his personal and professional reputation was unparalleled as far as I knew. And he was the icon of the successful investment professional for years, decades which is why he could start his fund with such confidence. So his move from NASDAQ to the creation of his own group was a predictable success. Everyone trusted Madoff, the pillar of the community, always on hand for whatever charity needed help and always ready with sound financial advice, until he wasn't. <laughs> now there's one more character I'd like to introduce you to. This last face is not a criminal. This is Dr. Fisher Black, 
And not only is he clean, criminally speaking, he's also a relative. <laughs> our families moved, our family actually moved from the mountains of North Carolina in the early 20th century. Uncle Fisher's branch ended up in uh, Bronxville in New York City, which you may know is a very posh suburb. My branch ended up on the, on the Hudson as well, but uh, a little further downtown on the west side of Manhattan in what has become known as Hell's Kitchen. If you ever watched uh, West Side Story, that's it. Um, but now it, it is posh now because it's now the, where I was born is currently the site of the Juilliard School of Music. <laughs> now, like other characters in my collage, Fisher proved far better uh, uh, than I in corporate finance, or that I could ever hope to be. Fisher was a genius, a literal genius, recognized as such. With his background of a doctorate in mathematics and with, uh, from Harvard, and with uh, some of the leading lights uh, of the time as his mentors in, uh, in cybernetics, in, in uh, finance, in physics, um, it was clear that, that Fisher was a, a first-class practical polymath, a, a, a very certifiable genius. Now, one of the gurus of financial academia at Princeton at the time, a man named Bernard Malkiel, any of you, do any of you have a background in finance? I just want to know who, where the tomatoes are going to come from soon. <laughs> you do. You'll, you'll remember Bernard Malkiel from Princeton. Um, he's a very heavyweight. 1973, he... he published an intellectual um, blockbuster called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Now in that, he quipped, God Almighty does not know the proper price earnings ratio for a common stock. In other words, nobody knows what it is. But he might have amended that because at just about the same month, or maybe a month after, um, Malkia's book came out, Fisher and his collaborator, uh, Myron Scholes, published a paper that changed the financial world uh, entitled The Pricing of Options and Corporate Liabilities. It did exactly what Malkiel believed was a divine act. It told us, or at least claimed to tell us, what the price for a security on the stock market ought to be. Suddenly, the world of finance changed. It had a theory that justified its existence, that it made it rational. There is, according to this theory, a unique and universal corporate measure of value. Fisher, Fisher's and Myron's work became known as the Black-Scholes equation. The magnitude of the breakthrough was recognized in the awarding of the Nobel Prize for Economics to Scholes in 1977. Uncle Fisher died in 1995, and you, the, the Nobel Prize is not awarded posthumously. It is the E equals MC squared equivalent in corporate finance. From it has been derived the models that now dominate in financial markets. These derivatives have become the bread and butter of the financial industry and also, of course, the bane of society. They are the trigger which set off the 2008 financial crisis and the, and the form lurking uh, and, the, and the lurking specter of a, of a form of yet more instability. Without testing your patience about the details of this equation, let me point out its import in a way that most economic, uh, economists don't. Liberal economics, the theory that underlies, uh, paradoxically, the conservative economic doctrines in most countries today, 
relies on the basic premise that what is important, what matters, what counts, what is valuable, in other words, is subjective and incommensurably so among subjects. In other words, my preference for buying fast cars, I used to be a director of Lotus Cars, <laughs> woking to, to Norfolk in an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, is but my preference for fast cars is neither more or less significant than your preferences for intellectual scholarship, let's say, or anything else. To advance the idea coherently, 19th century uh, economists developed the concept of utility, an abstract and undefined measure of value which is unique to individuals. The natural economics, since its exception, inception in the early 1950s, people like Merton Miller and so forth, um, contradicts the basic premise of subjective utility in, 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 in classical econo uh, liberal economics. Financial economics tells us how to value, uh, how value is to be measured on a metric which we'll get to in a minute, which is both precise and crucially universal. Value is no longer something personal. It is what this and similar equations says it is. And this is what, in my experience, links all these individuals together. Each was a leader, a very significant leader, in not just an industry, but in a far more dispersed and diffused context, as it were, a context so pervasive that it's become virtually invisible. In other words, an ideology for short. And this ideology is that of wealth creation. It calls itself, in fact, wealth creation. It is both new in the sense that only relatively recently, that is, let's say, in the last 20 years, has it become uh, dominant in, in not just business, but in politics, certainly in academia. And it is old in the sense that it has its roots in a historical, uh, historically distant past. And more importantly, it, it, it logically subsumes previous and less inclusive ideologies as special cases. It is a sort of master ideology, which is used both to justify behavior and to limit what is considered relevant in the world. It's not just the air we breathe, intellectually, therefore, it's the social fabric of our relationships. It has become so. Now, each of these individuals shaped and was shaped by this ideology. Let me just explain a little bit. <coughs> I only realized when I put this slide together that, in fact, it has a certain Hegelian correctness that one has to appreciate. <laughs> because one could look at this as the uh, 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 development of, of, of uh, a macroeconomic policy, which, after World War II, was directed towards increasing consumption until inflation became a real problem, and then, as well as globalization. <coughs> At which point, uh, and so this is the world of, of advertising, so, you know, mad men. <coughs> and th this is the world of pr productivity, where I grew up in, in, in the world of production, when the, the key criteria uh, being taught in business schools during this period was actually efficiency, because that we didn't know what the measure of corporate value was, but we could tell that cost was a negative value. Cost was always negative. Besides, globalization was taking place at the time. There was lots of outsourcing and contracting and things like that. And that was the area, uh, area of, of, of production ideology. Until uh, that ideology started to become unhinged as well, because uh, 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 that ideology created uh, uh, social instability in the first instance. 
Um, not very many people are happy about uh, you know, the, the state of Detroit, for example, which is an example of what happened when, through this ideology. It's, it's a wasteland. Population like that of other cities in the U.S. in North America, especially, have halved in the last uh, two decades. It's an incredible situation, largely brought about by this. Because what happens in the production ideology is, of course, innovation goes out the window. You're always talking about standard commodities and how to produce them cheaper than anybody else, and you forget about innovation. So there, there is a, an issue that's raised here, social, uh, economically that um, national governments have, have, have been addressing since then. In the, I would say from starting really in about 1980 through the Reagan and Thatcher years into uh, the, the beginning of the 90s is really when the, this ideology of wealth creation started to bite. When people, you'll notice, started to use it as the rationale for what they were doing, especially so-called financiers. You know, I come back to Jamie Dimon, somebody mentioned before. Jamie Dimon will explicitly uh, justify his existence and his every act on the basis of making the world more efficient. And I <coughs> that's what it's about. But in so doing, he's creating wealth. Everywhere he's creating wealth. I don't need to remind you of these things. Also, but I, in the Hegelian sense, I also point out that this is the dominant ideology of the, uh, the West when it comes to fighting the production ideology of the former Soviet Union, which then has been, about the same time, sort of synthesized as this wealth creation idea. Even the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union now is into wealth creation. It's, an, it's the, the incontrovertible thing, that place that we want to be. It's the, it's the rationale for everything that might be done by governments now as well as uh, companies. Now, I want to point out something about these uh, sort of chevaliers du finance that I've just pointed out. It is perhaps comforting to believe that these men, notice they are all men, <laughs> are exceptions, <laughs> are exceptions, <laughs> there, yeah, there's something about XYs that don't quite hinge right in this area. Anyway, it is perhaps comforting to believe that these men are exceptions to the authentic corporate finance, to that which is good and, and proposed as, uh, was it Mr. Uh, Lloyd Blankfein from the, the head of, uh, chairman of uh, Goldman Sachs testifying in, in front of Congress when they were all very irritated at causing our financial crash, And he said, we're doing God's work. <laughs> no, he wasn't kidding, you know. The vice chairman of, of finance in London, of, of Goldman Sachs in London, said the same thing to me. Yeah. Uh, we were talking before about the, the nature of original sin. <laughs> original sin is that, is, is the human propensity to justify and rationalize the irrational. <laughs> now, and if that's the case, if these people are exceptions to the rule of the true corporate finance, then we ought to be able to regulate them. New laws can progressively eliminate the kinds of abuses which they've, of which they've been convicted. Uh, and I, I'm going to suggest to you that's patently misinformed. 
Such a view is, in fact, merely another manifestation of the ideology itself. It justifies itself. It's the nature of ideology. <coughs> the institutional flaws, which may exist, uh, and I have no doubt there are many, are produced and tolerated, in fact, and promoted by the culture of wealth creation. If you push the pillow in at this side, it pops out at this side. These people are very clever. And no matter what you do, no matter what society does, it's going to be 20 years behind the arbitrage rules. Finally, as a consequence, it is not these individuals nor the institutions in which they acted which are the main problem. The central issue is our, that is yours and mine, and millions of other, uh, others who collude in this ideology on a daily basis through sins of omission and commission. Now, I'll try to get into what these are in a moment. But to notice that they are, that they are notice if we go through that we're talking about ideological variants of this master ideology. And that's the first step in recognizing uh, the cultural cohesion, actually, of government policy and corporate education and business schools. And, I mean, it all fits together in a very nice, neat package. Uh, this, as I said, began in the 19th century, uh, but then, remarkably, reversed the, the entire idea of liberal economics. So uh, one of the paradoxes of current uh, this debate is that economists argue about liberal economics versus state institutions in an old-fashioned way. And it's an irrelevance. They're all on this page. And they're all talking about wealth creation in one form or another. Now, in order to make my argument uh, something less than a book-length book treatise about wealth creation. I'm forced to choose a part, but really a quite a central part of this ideology as a symbol for the whole. And I'm gonna test your patience when I flip to the next slide because it's an equation. It's this equation. Now those of you familiar with finance will find this <coughs> trivial, in fact, banal. Those of you who are not familiar with finance should find this banal <laughs> and learn to find it trivial. It is a symbol of the entire culture. It's a central component of it. It's the so-called net present value equation, NPV for short. All of corporate financial theory, even Uncle Fisher's equations, and all its various derivatives is based, are based on this fundamental axiom, which was only developed, as far as I can tell, at the late 19th century. I think it's Irving Fisher who, who did it. Namely, that value, the thing which is most important, can be expressed as the summation of all future cash flows discounted at some specific rate of interest. That's all it says. Summation of all the net benefits discounted over some period of time ideally infinitely. Now, this is the important point about this. This is the definition of wealth, which is meant whenever one hears the term wealth creation. This is what they're talking about, okay? It has nothing to do with being somehow better off as an individual or a society, with higher or lower rates of disease, malnutrition, education, or death. 
In, corporation, in, in corporate finance, wealth is an abstraction. In fact, it's an abstraction to the third degree. It's a money of the mind. Something entirely symbolic, even more abstract than money, than money, in that it need not even be in a bank account. It is wealth that is quite literally made up out of thin air and the dubious expectations of a future calculated by those who have a stake in the results of that calculation. It's quite straightforwardly. And we'll see how this works out. So remember, when you hear about wealth creation from various economists of whatever stripe, and or politicians. It is this that they are referring to, not money in the bank, not new high-tech machines or diamonds under the mattress. If wheat in the barn is actual wealth, as an example, and the coin of the realm is one level of abstraction away from the wheat, and the funds in your bank account are two levels of abstraction away from the wheat, this is three levels of abstraction away from the wheat and from anything that, re that, that resembles human needs. This is what they talk about. It's a calculation. It's even worse than accounting. Accounting looks disciplined according to the, uh, <laughs> compared to this. So what's wrong with wealth creation? What real effect does defining value in this way have on real people? Well, for start, NPV is based on several presumptions. Things like statistical stability of, of past results and some reasonable accuracy in, the, in prediction and so forth. Now, these are at least defensible in, in quasi-scientific terms. But there is another presumption involved here, which is not only a serious flaw, but an implicit contradiction. That is the presumption of what's called perfect liquidity. In order for this to work, you have to be able to borrow at any time based on these expectations. They're the expectations here. Right? You might have a bad year, you might have miscalculated one year, but the, 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 the theory says that liquidity is always available. Now, what the, that, what the theory requires is that the investment decision maker has the ability to borrow funds at any time during the course of his project. This is equivalent to saying that there be available an agreement, a, a, a permanent provider of loans who is in complete agreement with the estimates of the future made by the decision maker. A lender, in other words, who has exactly the same information and interests as the borrower. This, for various reasons I won't go into, is absurd. Now, but the absurdity isn't the real problem. When folk like Bernie Madoff and Jeff Skilling and Michael Milliken come face to face uh, with reality, the reality of a lack of liquidity, which each of them did, for whatever reason, their response is almost uniform. They all say in so many words, my calculations of value are correct. I know this because I'm on the inside. I'm the actor. I know what, what, better than anybody else, what my business is about. Therefore, if no one will lend me the money I need to I, that I need to realize this value, I'll create my own liquidity. As a value creator, I not only can do it, I must do it as a moral duty to society. I can guarantee you each one of these thought 
in so many words, exactly that way. Some of them still do. Now, how do you create your own liquidity? Well, in the case of Bernie, you effectively borrow from new investors to pay out dividends to the old investors. And as long as you're growing with new investors, you've got lots of money, lots of liquidity to pay the old investors, which is what he was doing. That's the Ponzi scheme. Now, for Jeff at, at Enron, you literally lend to yourself through intercompany transactions based on the calculations you made. For example, in a half-built uh, power plant in India, it really has no value whatsoever. But according to your net present value calculations, it has tremendous value. So you transfer it on the books from one to another, and suddenly the book capital goes up everywhere. Everybody's quite happy. The markets are open to you. No problem with liquidity. If you're Michael Milken, you get your pal Ivan Bosky to manipulate the stock price so it looks like you have more assets than you really are. No problem. Liquidity everywhere. Now, this theory of, of, of wealth creation in NPV presumes liquidity. If liquidity is not available, it should be. So I am justified for the good of all in creating it. The real crime is not fraudulently creating my own liquidity, or occasionally manipulating the books a little bit, but failing to realize the value I know I can create. That's the big sin. Et voila, theory justifies behavior. And it's true. So clearly there is a hidden moral issue in the practice of, of, of corporate finance. But that moral issue is even more severe than, the, provo than the, the provocation it leads to cheat. Corporate finance is in fact a pseudoscience which distorts reality. Ask yourself how a model of value, any model, just not NPV, just not NPV uh, is, is verified, is, is somehow certified as reasonable. How do we know it's correct in any sense you like to, to, to mean? How do you do that? Well, suppose you go out and do an enormous research project, and um, you find out, as some people have done with some other similar models based on this, that here's the, on this axis is the calculated, calculated value. And this is the actual value, let's say, as measured by the stock market capitalization. Now, so you go out and find out what this is, in fact. So suppose it looks like this. Suppose you get the data points, all of it. People do. It looks like this. <coughs> and then some uh, empirical economists then draw lines through here based on, on uh, but by the way, if this worked, and it was exactly the same as that, it would be on this 45 degree line, right? Everything would be there, but it's not. What does it mean if something like this occurs, which it does all the time? Does it mean that the model is verified? Does it mean that people act irrationally? What does it mean? You can't tell. <laughs> you can't tell. You don't know whether the model is not correctly specified or whether people are acting insanely. 
You can't tell. <laughs> For example, the, the net present value model uh, implies that um, not only uh, lottery, participation in the lottery, but participation in insurance is an irrational act because it's always an NPV less than the value you're putting in. My brother calls lottery tax on stupidity. It's true. But it's also there's a very uh, reasonable rationale for, for participating in lotteries. If I'm living in a sink council estate, that lottery, I can afford the one pound to go in. And if I hit at some point, I'm getting out of here. And there's no other way I can get out of here. It makes reasonable sense to go for the lottery. There's a rationale quite different from MVP, MVV being used there. But MVV, it's just different choice for what the benefits are. There's a different criterion. That's my point. There's a different criterion of choice. Now, whether you judge that as different benefits, by the way, NPV is very clear about the benefits. It's tax. Okay? But even so, uh, there's a different rationale in that. As I said, you shouldn't buy insurance. Insurance, any insurance will probably uh, have an NPV of 50, 60% of what you put into it. Therefore, you shouldn't do it. And so forth. But this is the basis of what all of corporate finance is based on. So, of course, it's impossible to tell which is the case, whether the model's wrong or people are crazy. Now, I'm going to get philosophical here for a moment. In technical terms, in philosophical terms, this is because, this has shocked me, if you can understand it, I, I can't think of another way to express it, value is its own representation. Value is its own representation. There's nothing else behind value that you can then compare it to, to, to uh, except some other measure of value. Right? But there's nothing concrete, there's nothing empirical that you can say, oh, okay, we verified this model. This is correct model of value. You can't do it. Because the, the, mod the model itself is, is what determines value. There's nothing else there. It hangs, if you like, in the air. That's an important consideration. The reason that, that uh, Uncle uh, Fisher was considered such a genius is because he, he seemed to have broken through this. He didn't. <coughs> and we all learn to our, our cost. Yet, yet NPV is presented by corporate finance as the universal measure of value, thereby blinding us to whatever else might be considered important other than a very narrow range of cash flows. The wealth proposed by the culture of wealth creation is, in other words, a distortion of truly human interests and, no, and has no connection with those interests, even as merely a means to an end. This raises a third objection to corporate finance as literally inhumane in its culture, and that's the political. In the 1940s, the liberal uh, economist, Viennese, Austrian economist, Friedrich Hayek, wrote a rather interesting book entitled The Fatal Conceit. Some of you may have read it. It's really a, a, a classic, in which he quite successfully trashes the idea that any government can understand and respond to the material needs of its citizens through any sort of central direction of either a fascist or a communist sort. This was, this was Margaret Thatcher's Bible. Friedrich Hayek was her prophet. I agree entirely 
with Hayek's analysis. The problem is that one could substitute the words modern corporation for national government in Hayek's works, and they would read just as fluidly and in just in, in, in a similarly compelling fashion. In other words, if you said IBM, and then all the reasons, all the things that, all the reasons why IBM, in its central direction of what it's doing, it, uh, uh, is, is bad for humanity, is exactly the same set of reasons why uh, fascist culture is the same for, uh, is bad for humanity. Any attempt to impose the NPV criteria, in my experience, has several <coughs> predictable effects. You'll have experienced some of them. And these are analogous to those uh, which Hayek identifies in society. <coughs> the first is, uh, quite straightforwardly, manipulation of the numbers, something we can uh, uh, observe in the current battles over HS2. HS2, a couple of years ago, was going to cost $30 billion. I was going to call it 64 billion, but it was 30 billion. It just made the hurdle rates for the NPV calculations. At 64 billion, well, it still makes the, the hurdle, depending on who you talk to. Right? So we all pick and choose. So whoever's got political power chooses the numbers they want. Corporate politics becomes totalitarian inside <laughs> a corporation. Exactly the case. Jamie Dimon lost 4 billion. Dollars and a, and a bet on the market. What was it? Springtime? Was it last spring or last year? I can't remember. So many of them. It was this summer. Last spring. Yeah. Well, I think it happened before. Okay. Plus another fine of about a billion, plus or minus, for for doing all these bad things. Now, <coughs> somebody asked me, well, well, how do we stop them from doing that? Well, the point that I, I don't I don't know how to stop them. I I know regulators can't stop them, but what I'm surprised at is people in J P Morgan allow them to do. Right, the people who work with him, who never questioned his criteria. I don't know what his criteria is, because trading criteria are really weird. But I don't know what his trading criteria were. But whatever they were, they were bad. <laughs> For the people who lived with this fellow at work. And they let him do it. As I was talking before, I mean, the key aspect or the key nature, essence of a corporate relationship is that when I take an action committing corporate resources, I have to be prepared at every moment to give the reason, that is the criteria for that action. That's the only thing that makes corporations different from anything else in the world, from a society or a, or a, 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 a partnership. I gotta be prepared to specify what it, why, not what, not, not, I don't have to prove myself right. I have to specify why, and that has to be accepted by other people. I don't think anybody knew what the criteria of that trade was. It was probably one of Uncle Fisher's equations that was the criteria. And I don't know many people who understand it. Now, I mean, the, the second, there's another effect here I just mentioned too on corporate politics. It has to do with innovation again. You remember, remember the company 3M in the US? You know 3M. Well, 3M used to be a, a a, a junkyard company. It was a, a rust belt type thing in, in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And um, they were in all sorts of uh, conventional industries. And they kept saying to themselves, year after year, I have to be inside on this one, year after year, we have to become more innovative. We have to get out of these, these old-fashioned industries. We have to do something else. And every year, they would do the same thing they've been doing. Except 
One year, somebody said to him, uh, you may know a man named Russell Aikoff, I used to work with him. And I was in the office with Russell Aikoff, with the chairman and the board of, of 3M. And Russell said, I'm not a big fan. He said, from now on, all you're going to do is agree to pay yourselves based on not profit, I think it's happening there. Uh, yeah, this is like one of these innovative, pay yourselves based on the revenue, only the revenue, from products introduced within the last four years. Oh, he said, who would do that? He said, why not? And that's how they paid themselves. Suddenly, 3M becomes this dynamic, innovative thing. You may not agree with some of the innovations, like post-it notes and so forth, but nevertheless, <laughs> they are real innovations. And, and a number of other things. And the company changed itself completely. Just by the, just by the change in that criteria. Boop. Right? Easy. And that's what they did. Suddenly, innovation was everything. This is, by the way, why Japanese companies can move around so fast. They have a process for doing this all the time, called Rinji. And it's so obvious to the Japanese that everybody's got to, you got to run a company this way, that they don't just talk about it. And it's so opaque to Westerners looking at it, they can't figure out what it is. What's the name again? Ringi. <coughs> Finally, uh, corporate finance promotes ethical stupidity among the very people who claim to be creating wealth. What's the surest way to increase wealth as measured by the metric of NPV? Uh, let's say at a national level. So we're government now. We're looking at NPV at a governmental level. The equation itself provides the answer. Reduce interest rates. Easy. What happens when you reduce interest rates? Why does it go up? That's right. I mean, it's in the equation, right? Because the interest rates have a massive in impact on the on the present value of future flows. Massive. It's the key thing. In fact, it is hoped, with good reason, that the investment calculations, which eventually end up in corporate boardrooms, will show higher NPV and therefore stimulate really fundamental industrial spending. That's what the government's banking on. They keep telling us this. But there is a tiny flaw in this ointment, as we all are already experiencing, in our present economic recovery. Unlike its effect on industrial investment decisions, which necessarily take uh, some time, if they're going to work, take some time to work through the investment process, interest rate reduction has an almost immediate impact on the price, that is the market value, of marketable assets. Like, for example, houses. The value of which should and do increase according to the equation instantaneously. Both because costs decrease and because the implicit value of future rental income, which is another way to look at this, uh, uh, goes up, even if rents remain constant. So, by reducing interest rate, the country is, has increased wealth. Easy peasy. <laughs> yeah. It's what's called an asset bubble. And during the period of dominance of wealth creation, ideo of this ideology of wealth creation, asset bubbles have become a, an increasing and perennial problem for economic policymakers. The dot-com boom, remember, was, was such a bubble. Um, the US housing boom was such a bubble. The commodity price booms that have come and gone are such bubbles. And they are all drive towards wealth creation. This is what they've done. And as we feel the full effects of wealth creation, these problems are likely to increase. You know, it's incredible how we underestimate the effect of intellectual 
uh, of intellectual capacity on our lives. In, in the, uh, the, the parallel problem to this in the uh, period from the 30s till the Reagan administration in the 80s was in, in US foreign policy. US foreign policy had two planks since 1933. One was the uh, subsidy of farm uh, output, just like in the EU, for certain crops. The second policy was almost an e equivalent research subsidy to increase crop yields in those same crops. Everybody can catch a contradiction. <laughs> a little, a little uh, awaiting Hegelian synthesis. In fact, there is Hegelian synthesis. This is the way this process works through the business. Anybody got any thought about what the uh, criteria is that we're working on that includes these two things, both farm income and research? Could be now. But there was an economist named Paul Buchanan, famous guy, who worked for Reagan and said, and said to everybody, look, we've been trying every year since 1933 to reduce these subsidies. One of them got me wrong. And yet every year they go up. Why do they go up? Because they contradict me, everybody says. We've got to reduce them. No, no, no. He said, they're not contradictory. They're all driven by an implicit criteria that we've never made explicit. And that is, the criteria is the value of farmland. That is the criteria. And both suddenly, everybody goes, yes. Then he says, is that really a national priority? And everybody says, no. <laughs> and for the first time in history, both went down, at least slightly, right? Because of the recognition of what we were actually doing. Yeah. Now, Jeff Skilling had exactly these kinds of asset bubbles going within Enron. He couldn't burst them without bringing the company down. So it became a big Ponzi scheme. He had to simply make them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Effectively, this is what Bernie and Michael did as well. There's yet another uh, ethical dimension to this, which may go unnoticed. Evil in the modern world is functionally defined in the corporate, through corporate finance as the lack of wealth. Am I right? Now, that's of course defined financially. This is how it's defined. Is this really the case? Is a lack of financial wealth in the UK the reason we are fa uh, falling in the international educational league tables? I don't think so. Is it a lack of financial wealth that created the thousands of unnecessary deaths in mid-staffs and other parts of the NHS? I don't think so. Is it a lack of financial wealth that causes social services to fail to respond to obvious signs of child, child abuse? I don't think so. In other words, is the creation of financial wealth the solution to social needs? I don't think so. I see no evidence that that's the case. Aside, and besides, it's a made-up number. Each member of my gallery would argue that financial wealth is the basis of all good, that there never can be enough of it. Each presented himself as a wealth creator who, as I mentioned in the words of, of Lloyd Blankfein from, from Goldman Sachs, was doing God's work. Indeed, this doing of God's work through wealth creation may be the ultimate Calvinistic legacy. And to a not inconsiderable extent, every one of these men 
had all the characteristics of evangelical missionaries, carrying the word into every part of the financially pagan world. Inevitably, they believed their own press. And in doing so, they were doomed. They believed themselves not only above the law and accounting convention, but above what they claimed was their guide, markets, market prices. I mean, I have to quote, uh, I think it's Bernard Baruch here. The market can stay irrational a lot longer than you can stay liquid. <laughs> and that was the case with every one of them. Now, let me conclude, therefore. First, there is no fixed measure of corporate or any other value. The criterion of corporate value, if they are to be authentic and effective, are constructed by a political process within every corporate group. These criteria will differ among corporations, but they will almost certainly not be that of today's corporate finance. But that's a further story we don't have time to get into today about why that's the case. You know, of course, about the wave of so-called outsourcing that has become not only a commercial, but a governmental fashion. The essential nature of outsourcing is the transformation of a corporate relation into a contractual relation. That's what happens. Uh, ask yourselves the question again, what is the limit of corporate outsourcing? To what degree can a company contract with others to perform the functions required to keep it in business and yet remain as an entity? What's the limit? Anybody got an idea? 100 percent. Then the corporation disappears. There is no. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, 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 not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. There's one thing. No, no. If you're going to stay in business, one thing that can't be outsourced. It's logi logically obvious. A company can can contract out everything it does except for one thing: the decision on the appropriate criterion to undertake the outsourcing. Right? That's what they can't outsource. That's the decision on value. That's the decision on the criterion of value. That's what cannot be outsourced. That's the essence of the corporation. That's the only reason it's there, by the way. According to market theory, the corporation should be dispersed in contractual forms. The only thing that's, not, that's keeping it from being dispersed contractually is market inefficiencies. I would contend that's not the case. The real reason for the corporation is to discover these criterion of value, which you can't discover individually. If, the decision is, if that decision is taken away from management, there is no more corporation. Yet this is precisely what the ideology of corporate finance implies. There is one ultimate criterion fixed for all so that we don't have a corporate decision. This destroys the corporate relation entirely, and with it the possibility of, of discovering of any communal criteria of value that are connected to a larger but concrete, or at least closer to concrete, good. From experience, I can say that this truly corporate criterion, when it is found, is perceived, like in the case with Paul Buchanan, as an almost miraculous event. It is truly a synthesis arrived at by a very different logic, it's called adduction, than that presented in the ideology of wealth and wealth creation. And it is a criterion arrived at by a process in which, and I choose my words carefully here, the spirit is an active participant. Someone asked me if I was going to get into theology. Only touching it. <laughs> I've only gone up to it. I haven't gone into it. Um, but this brings me to the, 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 the theological considerations, really, uh, that I can't get into now, although I would love to. But if, if you're interested, um, term starts in two weeks or something. <laughs> 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 
Uh, returning finally, and therefore, to my financial gang of four, it is because of others, namely we, who participate in corporate life, that these otherwise just and competent men were not just allowed, but provoked into their stupidity and ultimate crimes. The far greater fraud lies in our neglect of our corporate duty to act as a voice for true human interests in our daily corporate lives, to recognize the culture of wealth creation and the techniques of corporate finance for what they are, a scam, both intellectual and practical. To and we have to reconcile as part of that activity our views on, on what those interests are. We are, in other words, most of us, fraudsters. And I suppose God bless us all. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.